welcome to Horror Through Her Eyes. You've got the Taminator here and Amateur Destroyer, ready to explore the twisted world of horror and prove that girls enjoy horror just as much as the guys do. Yeah, exactly. We do. <laughs> Tonight is just going to be like a, we're just going to get right back into our review of Fall of the House of Usher. That was Jessica's pick because neither of us have really watched anything since last week and there's not really much new headlines or news or anything like that. So if you're cool with that, Jessica, I say we just get right into it. Yes. Right into it. Um, we already gave a uh, introduction of the fall of the House of Usher in our last episode. So we're just going to go ahead and dive into episode three here, um, which is Murder in the Rue Morgue. And that is, of course, based on the short story Murders in the Rue Morgue. Um, and just like with our last episode, I'm going to have links to all of the poems and short stories for each episode in our show notes that you guys can check out in that uh, Poe Museum that's online, um, as well as, I think in real life, it's in Virginia, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, But for episode three, uh, a little synopsis here for everyone is, in charge of the Usher's publicity, Camille conspires to spin controversy in her family's favor and expose the grim details of her sister's experiments. So... This is the Camille-heavy episode, since, you know, all of these episodes are really um, kind of dedicated to a specific character. So this is going to be Camille's episode. Um, And, of course, um, Kate Siegel, is it Kate Siegel, you think, is how you pronounce it? It's Seagull, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. I guess I never tried saying it out loud. Um, But Kate Seagull is, uh, you know, Mike Flanagan's wife, and she's the one who plays Camille. Um, So that this is going to be her heavy episode. You know, Um, and I know each one is just per character, but I just loved her character so much. I just wish we got more of her. I get it. I understand, like, that's the structure of this whole thing, but... I yeah. just feel like she was such a I well, I'm biased because I love her so much anyway, but right. you know, she was such a dynamic character and we just don't get that much of her, so I really like this episode. Yeah, she is a really fun character. She's still not likable, like Oh god, no. no most god, of the no. ushers. But <laughs> she was definitely entertaining, if yes. nothing else. <laughs> yeah. So the episode kind of starts with her trying to put a spin on the death of Perry, um, you know, for the public um, and try to make him appear as like a JFK Jr. kind of um, deal instead of what was really going down. So she's working on that, which she's the master of. That's her thing. Um and they also discover Morella, um, Frederick, a.k.a. Frederick's wife. Um, who survived the acid rain um, in the nightclub. So she's actually rescued, but burnt real bad, looking pretty gooey. Yeah. Um, And she's taken to the hospital. And so we have, we've, you know, Perry's definitely dead. (laughs) And Morella survived, as well as the staff that were warned by Verna ahead of time. Um, 
And Pim, um, played by Mark Hamill, he gets an image of Verna um, as the woman in the red cloak in the footage from the party that Perry was recording in order to blackmail everybody. So that actually came in handy for Pim because he sees this mysterious cloaked figure and is trying to figure out if maybe that's the person who did this. Um, and we know Pim is also very good at his job. So already he's kind of got his scent on the right trail. Um, and uh, Roderick and Madeline, they don't recognize Verna when he shows them the footage at first. So we oh, have, she looks like this, right? Or does she take her, <laughs> does she take her, mask off at any time so i know I she didn't they catch her whispering to the wait staff but i don't know that she ever until she goes in the room with um perry i don't know that she ever takes it off right i honestly don't remember but in that room they might have a i think because they had recording devices in all the rooms oh right that's right that's so right. they might i i know we just watched this but i cannot remember if they got an actual picture of her but i'm assuming they did if pim is asking them if they recognize her. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I think that he must have caught a glimpse of her face at some point on the footage, which I'm sure she wasn't trying to hide at all. But he's suspecting that she's tied to Perry's death somehow. And so now after all of this is established, we're moving on to Camille. And um, she's investigating her half-sister, Victorine, because she is still pretty set that Victorine is the informant. So she wants to go check out her lab um, and see if she can get any dirt on her, because that is the other half of her job. <laughs> Why do you think she fixated so much on her being the informant? There's no reason to think that. You know what I mean? Um, no yeah, reason honestly, more than anybody else. I think she's just jealous because their dad was favoring Victorine because of yeah. the project that she was working on. Yeah. I think that's, that's the only reason true. why her and Tamerlane are always giving her crap. Like, oh, she's daddy's favorite. Like, if you bought us a lab, we would impress you, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's really the only reason. Okay. But um, so she wants to go check out the lab. And before she does that, she's talking with her two assistants, Toby and Tina, um, in this really hilarious scene where they <laughs> confess to her that they've fallen in love and they no longer want to have sex with her. And she <laughs> very directly reminds them that they have NDAs and consent forms that they signed um, for their full service position. Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically is going to shut them down. I think she ends up firing them, right? Yeah. She asks them to like do one more thing and they're like, seriously yeah <laughs> i mean she's like she legit thinks like she's like you are like i'm sorry but you're like contractually obligated to me to do this and they're like um no bye and she's like before you go <laughs> yeah so funny it's just a funny little scene i like it it gives us even more of her character and just like they all have these weird kinks and stuff yeah, so yeah, i just think yeah. that that's really funny too um, but yeah, she's, she's a fun character. So after all this goes down, she goes to the lab to see what she can find. And that is when she meets with Berna at the lab, um, who is now a security guard. Yeah. And they have a really fun little, I don't know what you would, what would you call it? <laughs> uh, interaction? I don't know. Yeah. Like she comes in there like she's all big and bad. You know, Camille's just like, used to being in charge of every situation that she goes into, she automatically 
starts tre- treating Verna, who's just sitting at the security desk, uh, being mm-hmm. a security lady, just like she's, you know, an idiot and that, you know, it's like kind of like, don't you know who I am or whatever. And in the whole, I mean, we as the audience know, like, oh, you don't know what you're up against, Camille, you know, and, yeah. you know, Verna uh, just kind of plays along or whatever her name is here. And um, it, but I mean, this one really goes from zero to a hundred very, very quickly, I would say. Yeah. And it's one of the few times that like, I think Verna like kind of shows herself as a supernatural character. Because she doesn't really too much to the other people, you know? That's true. Like, in a much more direct way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it is really fun watching them kind of go back and forth. And Verna's just super cool. And Camille's kind of losing her shit. Um, well, because I think Camille gets put off right away because she, she kind of notices after not too much time that Verna's not really kowtowing to her, like not treating her with the respect that she feels like, or not, like right. not being subservient to her, or whatever, and getting closer yeah. and closer into her space and just too much eye contact. And you can yeah. see Camille is get like starts to try to like move away from her, noticing that, okay, this lady is something up with this chick. What's going right. on? And then we, we see very quickly that, yeah, there's something up with that chick. Yes, the ushers are just so entitled, and they think that they can just move mountains with their money. Yeah. That's it. So, yeah, she's, like, obviously uncomfortable by this interaction, but thinks that she wins the debate in the end. Um, But we soon find out that that is not true. Yes. And, again, Verna does try to give her kind of a warning, um, saying that you never needed to come to this lab you know, and you're the clever one. And, um, I, you know, her death is still imminent, but she could have put it off for a little longer is kind of what it sounds like. <laughs> well, yeah, because when she first came in, Verna wasn't going to let her in, right? And then she's kind of just like, don't you know who I am? Like, I yeah. can freaking take you down and, um, you know, my family owns this place and blah, blah, blah. And Right. Yeah, like, you could have left, but no, no, no. You just had to push your way in here, so... Now I'm afraid exactly. I have to kill you. Exactly. And so in this next scene, when Camille's trying to record the lab, she's checking out all the chimps, um, and she's seeing the the mesh heart device implanted um, and all of that. And, oh, I kind of hate the scene just because I hate, you know, the idea of testing on animals, of course. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it is really cool when all of a sudden a chimp rises up um, and it's actually Verna who's become a chimp to attack Camille. But when she's recording it, you can see um, the chimp on the camera, but she is seeing Verna in yeah. front of her. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a really, really fun trick that they did. Yeah. Um, so that was super cool. And then, of course, the chimp attacks. And, and pretty a- much just rips Camille into shreds. Yeah, that is the end of poor Camille. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's very, very cool. Cool scene. Um, all right. And then aside from this scene, Verna has also appeared to Tamerlane and Bill um, for one of their little after hours psychosexual life theater game that they're so <laughs> into. Oh, my God. That is the most perfect description of that I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> I I have to admit I stole that from the, net, the Netflix well, uh, recap, but it's very fitting. Exactly what it is because it's very it was very <laughs> hard to put into words last time or last week when yes. I was trying to explain it. So exactly. Yeah. 
So she's posing as uh, an escort and joins them for an evening. Um, What I really do like about this scene is that she has this real genuine moment with Bill at the dinner table. And you can see them connect and he feels so seen and like he's not just hanging out with a sex worker. It's like somebody genuinely cares about how his day was and but you it's can like also see sad. it. Yeah, you can also see it on Tamerlan too, because that kind of makes her. She normally starts right in on what she does, and you can just mm-hmm. see her. She's noticing that, like, hold up, these two are like, it's not. No, you're not supposed to like be interacting like that. You know, she can see that her husband is like having a real moment with this woman, and it just. I think that's the start of things not going quite as planned, you know? Yeah. Because she's just supposed to come in there and, yeah, she's pretending to be his wife and all that, but there's none of the, like, looking in each other's eyes kind of stuff supposed to be going on that seems to be going on here. So I think Tamerlan's just a little taken aback and maybe not quite as turned on as she normally is. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> all right. And that's there that's Tamerlane's first interaction with her so we see that she's kind of weaving her way into all the ushers lives you know and kind of like introducing herself to these different family members so it's really great the way that they start setting up for future episodes um you know within the current episode and it's just works so perfectly I love it um, Me too. Me too. Another thing um, that happens is that uh, Leo gets super wasted because he's like really distraught about Perry dying. And all the other ushers are just concerned with covering it up. And Leo is at least like, this is fucked up. Why don't you guys care that our brother died? He's hurting over it. Um, So at least we get that little bit of dimension to Leo. Um, But he is still a fuck up. (laughs) And he does get totally wasted on all kinds of drugs and alcohol. And when he wakes up in the morning, he's covered in blood. Um, and he's really confused. He's clearly confused and he's kind of looking around their apartment and he finds that he uh, accidentally killed their cat Pluto, which he had stabbed to death, uh, which is pretty brutal. Um, and he doesn't look happy that he had done <laughs> yeah. this. You know, he clearly does not remember it at all. Um, but he starts cleaning furiously. I'm trying to remember. I think Julius must have gone to work or something um, because he wasn't there when he had woken up. He's like cleaning like a madman. And then he's out on the hunt to find a new black cat that looks just like Pluto so that Julius won't disown him. And so that's the kind of setup for more to come. But then we're flashed back to 1979 again, um, where Roderick, um, who's played by Zach Gilbert, as previously discussed, um, discovers that his idea to bring Ligadone to Fortunato was stolen by Rufus Griswold, yeah. the CEO. Or is he the CEO? I remember we talked about this. We don't know if he's the actual CEO, but he's like the boss of Roderick, if nothing more. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this- he's something. I'm not sure of his initials. He's something like that. Yes. So he's the boss. They decided to steal his idea. 
um, and they give him a check for $500 and they give him a promotion um, and remind him that he needs to be thankful. And Annabelle Lee, Roderick's wife back in 1979, she's like, hey, that's great. You know, we got a little more money for the kids. Like, we'll take it, you know, kind of sucks, but, you know, whatever. And Madeline sees this as an opportunity um, to gain Roderick some more influence, you know, because she's like, hey, you have a part in this now. You know something that they've done that you were a part of. Like, we can kind of leverage this at some point in the future. So we just got to play our cards right. Right. But I think at this point, Roderick's still, he's he's got, like we were saying before, he's got Annabelle Lee on one shoulder and Madeline on the other. And I'm not sure he's totally, I think this is the moment that he starts to go corrupt, but I really don't think he was up until this point. It's definitely Madeline that has that streak in her, I think, you know, that's always feels like those kids were done so wrong since birth, I think, and has just yeah. been, I think, biding her time, waiting, like, just conniving a way to get back at these people, where I think Roderick really would, like, I think he really thought he was, you know, going to get the job there, and he's got this idea for the Ligodone, and I think he really thought he was going to be helping people, and I think now he's starting to have his eyes open to how corporate America really is you know yeah the top stay on top the bottom stay on the bottom and that's just how it is but Madeline's not having it at all yeah so she's just starting to scheme um at this point right just gonna spiral real quick here um but yeah I agree that at this moment I think he's still just trying to like make an honest living and fight his way to the top, you know. Well, you could tell like he was right so way. so gobsmacked that yeah he had stolen his idea and then insulted him by like, oh, here's five hundred dollars when you know this company's going to make God billions. What what comes after billions? I don't even know. You know, off of <laughs> right. this thing, and they're like, oh sure. Uh, here's $500, like, to buy your silence now. Yeah, we're going to, you know, we'll move you up in the company some. But it's just, I think he just is like, what just happened, you know? Right. Yeah. And then I believe we close up this episode um, back in the present time with Roderick meeting with Augie, you know, in the dilapidated house. And now he's seeing the corpse of Camille. And he's talking about how depraved the ushers are and how they're able to spin and manipulate the media, you know, and the general public in any way that they want because they have wealth and power. Um, And that's how that episode ends. I am trying to remember if it's this episode or maybe it was even in the prior episode. I think probably the beginning of this one. There's a nice... a nice moment when Camille comes over to Leo's apartment and they they get messed up together before he gets super wasted. Oh, yeah, wasted. that's right. Yes. And yes, they're kind of like hanging out and commiserating. And I think she had never been to his place before. And she, you know, gets to meet Julius. And Julius has never met the ushers because Leo's always like kept him away from them, which is probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, even though Julia's like, no, I want to meet your family. Um, But I thought that that was just kind of a fun little scene of the siblings actually bonding and Camille, who's so uptight, actually like relaxing for five seconds. Um, Um, Dialogue and stuff. I totally agree. We don't get a lot of interaction at all between any of the siblings, let alone Camille and somebody. Yeah. And um, 
I had totally forgotten about that scene, though, until you just brought it up. But, yeah, I totally agree. And it seems like maybe that was one of the siblings that she, for whatever reason, felt she could kind of let her guard down with a little bit and be just a little bit more normal, you know, because mm-hmm. kind of like not having that business woman in a suit facade on all the time. Yeah. She just felt like they had some kind of a connection that she just didn't seem to have with anybody else. So, yeah, that was nice. Yeah. Maybe it's because they were like the closest in age because he's the next older yeah that could be but she also like straight up seemed like she didn't consider that he might be the informant though either like right you know she was like suspecting everybody and yeah she never confronted him with that did she i don't remember i don't think so i mean who could suspect leo seriously being honest yeah, that's true. <laughs> he's not really playing the game the way the others are. Like, he's still taking advantage of what he gets, but he doesn't seem like he's, you know, playing the game. Right, yeah. And so that ends episode three. Um, and so now we're going to jump into episode four, which is The Black Cat. <laughs> and we ha- we did recently watch The Black Cat um for our other podcast, the horror cast, when we we're doing our um our post series over there. So that was fun just to kind of tie those together a little bit. But um oh, this has been the year of Poe in my life, yeah. I feel like. I know, you know for us. <laughs> yeah. I am not complaining. No. I think it's been so fun and I love it. And it just makes me want to go back and reread all of his work because it's been a long time for me actually. But um for episode four Leo adopts a black cat who soon brings evil and a mysterious woman into his home while uh, Roderick struggles with terrifying hallucinations. Yep. We do have a new star appear in this episode, which is Malcolm Goodwin as young Augie or Dupin. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that actor was also in Reacher and iZombie. Um, he did not look familiar to me. I don't think no, I've seen him either. in any. He's really good, though, in this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so now we're through two of the Usher kids, Perry and Camille. Um, and Roderick continues to emphasize that the family needs to become a wall in the face of this adversity. And I'm sure that, you know, in general, they're all starting to kind of freak out at this point. Because two in a row like that, you know, yeah. feels very targeted. And brutal. I mean, you've just discovered yeah. your... One brother was melted by acid and your sister was ripped apart by a chimp. So it's yeah. not like your it's not like your everyday death, you know what I mean? You just no. one of those would be like, I'm sorry, what you know, what happened to my sister? But yeah. yeah, yeah. Still hard to pin those deaths on a person, you know, which makes sense, but um Bill feels very targeted. So Roderick then confronts Victorine about why Camille would be snooping around her lab and he's wondering if she's possibly the informant since you know, that's what Camille does, and he knows that's what she was looking for. And at this point, instead of Victorine confessing that she was lying about the chimpanzees dying uh, during surgery, um, she just tells him what he wants to hear and that the study is moving into human trials. And this actually placates him, you know, and he kind of forgets about the whole informant thing. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's great. I know, Which but she was know. giving me anxiety doing this. Like, I'm like, oh. Oh, I know. You know they're going to figure you out, and you're just making it worse and worse. But yeah. That's how I feel every time anybody lies. That's why I can't, that's why I can't lie. Yeah. I cannot. 
I am a terrible liar. It's just like way too much anxiety, yeah, trouble, yeah. and energy, and yeah, totally. I forget everything. So if I ever try to lie, I would just like forget that I had said something. And <laughs> yeah, so I agree that this this episode probably more than any of them gave me that kind of anxiety. Yes, like, me too. Oh, you're get caught up in your lies. Yeah. Um, well, and she just keeps it. Well, I'm, well, I know we'll talk about, it, but she just keeps it just keeps piling it on and it's not like she even had a glimmer she had nothing to go on nothing was working and you're going to see in this episode just the lies just start compounding and she just she starts losing it basically absolutely as would I and maybe hopefully not to her degree but (laughs) Uh, and then they take a look at the security footage from the night that Camille died and they discover again Verna is the security guard. Um, so again, we're seeing Verna in some form of security footage. And at this point, Pim, I believe it's Pim, must have, Pim that's all the security footage? Let me see. He, he had it and he brings it to Madeline, right? And I, I do, think so. I do need to say here, like when we say that they have these pictures of Verna, she does look, you know it's her, but she does look strikingly different each time, like almost like different mm-hmm. ages. Um, just like she totally. Oh, it's so fun. It's like different hair, different makeup, different personalities, different attire, like all, she's just playing a different person every time. And it's so fun. Um, I'm sure it was really fun for her as an actor to be able to do that. He does such a good job. But I mean, I think it's, you know, they, I think Madeline's starting to get an inkling. Like, I feel like I know this person, but I'm not sure. But like, if you haven't seen this yet or, you know, it's just that you think, oh, well, it's the same person in the picture. Why don't they just realize it? But she really does yeah. look different enough. I think just different enough each time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not, like, totally obvious at this point. Although I think Pim is definitely starting to think something. You know, I yeah. don't think he thinks supernatural or anything like that. No. But it's like, hmm. but I think he thinks, like, that this is the same person each time, right. at least. Yeah. Right. And then they have to get the photo in hand so that they can take a better look. And that's when Madeline goes to the old bar from 1979. Uh, but it's not there. Um, so she finds it all boarded up. And there's a spray-painted raven above the door and a real raven perched above watching her. Um, but the bar is no longer open. So we see her go and check that out so we're starting to feel like okay maybe she is putting the pieces together um do you think the do you think the raven is her is verna's familiar or do you think that's the form that verna takes when she's not being verna i assume it's the form that she takes yeah i did too but i just wasn't 100 percent sure but yeah yeah, i think it's her yeah that's what i mean i don't i'm not 100 percent sure either but that's just what i think just based on like what the raven typically represents and especially in pose work and then you know in the the very first episode of the first scene we get of her, she has that beaked mask on. Oh, that, yeah, that's right. That's right. So oh, that it just kind of makes yeah. me think that it's probably her. Agree. Get around faster that way. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and at the same time that Madeline's going and checking out the bar, we see Roderick head down to the basement of the Fortunato building. Um, and he looks unsettled, and he's starting to hear bells jingling from behind the brick wall. And then he looks really worried. And I think that's, I can't remember if we've had instances where we've heard the bells yet, or if this is the first time. I know we got a glimpse of the jester. Yeah, Um I mean, we didn't, which we would have heard the bells at that time, but I don't know. He's really starting to have hallucinations now. I can't remember, but here's where, I mean, I think this is where I started to 
I didn't totally know, but I think this is where I started to kind of put together what I thought had maybe happened. I don't think I knew exactly what the bells were or anything like that, but, Mm -hmm. um, and I won't, I won't say, because I don't, I won't get ahead, but I think this is, and it was almost like it was hard. I'm not sure he even knew what the bells meant at this point. It's almost like they had put the wall so far out of their minds, you know, as as well as the night with Vern, it just feels like, their brain just doesn't even want to think about it, you know? I mean, obviously he knew right where to go and all that. So he knows what happened there, but it's like, I don't know, you know, because supposedly he has this disease and he's got, he's starting to get dementia and stuff. So I'm just not sure what that was like for him, but. Right. Yeah. And at this point, I think he's more concerned about like the dementia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And he hasn't like quite started putting all those pieces together yet. So I think that that's more heavy on his mind. And next, we we uh, meet back up with Leo, who's looking for a new cat, and he finds an uncanny candidate to replace poor Pluto at a shelter. And who's there running the shelter? None other but Verna. Verna, <laughs> who looks now completely different again. Yes. It's her, but a very toned-down version of her now. Yeah. A, she's a perky lover of cats, and I just love all of her talk about the cats and stuff. Yeah. That cat actually has a lot of applications, so she's trying to get him to look at other cats, you know, which is her given such him a, a chance. Yeah, yep, right? but he throws all the money at her. He's like, I will give you all the money. Take give me my this money. Cat. Take all yeah. my money. Yeah. These ushers and their money. She plays with them a little. She's just like, I don't know, you know. Yeah. And he gets the cat. He does. Spoiler. He gets the cat. And at this moment, he takes a picture of Verna holding the cat just so that he can really look at it, you know, and look at pictures of Pluto and be like, holy shit, yes, this cat looks just like that cat. So then he decides to get the cat. Um, but as soon as he brings a new cat home, it begins to terrorize him. Uh, <laughs> it does. It, it, it does. Like, and it slaps him every chance it can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it like scratches his yeah. eye. Oh. Yes, I know. Oh. And it leaves little dead, bloodied animals all over the apartment, <laughs> which is fun. That's such a cat thing. Um, <laughs> and nobody seems to see this new cat every time Leo's complaining about the cat. And someone enters the room and he's like, the fucking cat. No one ever sees it. (laughs) Yep. Like his weird imaginary ghost cat tormenting him. Uh, So actually, that makes me wonder, do you think it is the ghost of Pluto messing with him? That would be fun. Or it's Verna, you know? Oh, yeah, probably. Something like that. I mean, it's obviously an extension of her of some kind. But um, I don't know. Is it just, I mean, is it really there? I think it might be Verna, to be honest with you. That's kind yeah. of what I thought, but I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure it's really there because, yeah, no one ever sees it. All, all I see is his battle wounds. Yes. He gets <laughs> messed up. Yeah. And um, he gets to a point where he's just, like, tearing out all of the walls in his apartment, trying to find the cat because the cat kind of disappears and he can hear it in the walls or so he thinks. And it's Which just. Is, uh, there's the Poe theme, the Poe part of it, right? That's a big thing with Poe. It's like mm-hmm. ripping stuff apart, trying to find something in the walls. Totally. Yeah. He loves his walls for some yeah. reason. <laughs> yes. 
there's a lot of like that in here. The more will come. That's all I'll say for right now. Exactly. Oh, yes. Um, and he actually, he calls Verna to come get the cat. I totally forgot about that. He calls her. He's like totally distressed. Like, you need to come get this cat out of the walls of my apartment. Yeah. Um, and so she does, she does come, but, uh, suddenly the cat jumps out at him and tears out his throat. Yep. <laughs> and he almost pops its eye out. See, it's so funny. It's kind of funny. This is him fighting with this cat. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yes, he looks up to see Verna standing there with her eye popped out and licking blood off of her hands. And yeah. he leaves it. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, yes, I forgot he was ripping up the walls with his Thor hammer, his, like, Thor hammer replica. Yeah. (laughs) And, of course, he has to make a comment about how Chris Hemsworth will get him another one. Ushers and their money. Yes, and then he's trying to get this cat out of the freaking walls. And then... Julius actually comes home and finds that Leo has destroyed the place and tries to stop him. Um, and he doesn't hear the cat and he doesn't see any of the dead animals that are supposedly in the bathtub or anywhere else. Um, but Leo has lost it and he thinks that he sees the cat perched on the railing of the deck, like on the back patio porch of their apartment and he <laughs> runs at full speed with Thor's hammer in hand yeah. uh, and falls to his death over the railing. Mess up. apartment is like, it's like a skyscraper kind of, a, not skyscraper, but it's like not on the first floor. It's like right. up several It's floors. a pretty tall building, yeah. Yeah. Which we had gotten that impression from when we first even met Leo and he had that girl sneak out onto the back. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But yes, that is uh, Leo's demise via Black Cat. Yep, so there goes another kid. Yep, there goes another usher. Um, and also towards the end of this episode, we see Tamerlane, um, who's watching one of Bill's videos, like his live stream exercise class. And she thinks that she sees Verna, um, or, you know, she doesn't know her as Verna. She knows her as Candy, the the sex worker. Yep. She thinks that she sees her in the video as well as one of the like backup exercise people. So now she's really kind of starting to get nervous about that whole situation, you know, and jealous and thinking that they did have some sort of connection. But um, we're also really starting to see that her insomnia is also getting the better of her. Yeah, she's, re- I mean, really starting to lose it. Um, yeah. She's almost like having like her dad's level of like hallucinations. But I think, yeah. I mean, I think they're tormenting hallucinations that have been given to her by Verna, which we find out later. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, it's just, she, her big thing is she's just so super in control of everything, you know. She, I think she yeah. especially thought she completely controlled Bill. So she kind of starts going off the rails thinking that Bill's getting away from her. And mm-hmm. then, you know, she sees Verna there and she hasn't slept for a while at this point, I don't think. And Right, so, and yeah, Bill's her, been so concerned about her. Yeah, and it, it seemed like Bill was like, gen, I think, I think, I, I think she ultimately really had a lot of feelings for Bill, because I don't think she'd have gotten that tore up about it if she didn't. But Bill yeah. definitely had real feelings for her, and I think he was pretty hurt by 
um, what kind of like what Tamerlan put him through. I mean, I think, you know, people will put up a lot to have millions of dollars. And I think that might have been kind of what he was doing. But I think he truly, truly cared for her. I don't think he liked yeah. having the sex workers come and having to go. No, he even that told her day. that that was like her thing. Right. It's like, so. I do that for you. I don't even want to do that. I feel bad for poor Bill. I know. I totally felt bad for him, too. And I really think at that point, it, I think he was would have been willing to, like, kind of do just about anything for her. But he, uh, she, you know, was just like, you're stupid. You don't know anything. I could handle all this, blah, blah, blah. But I think he was genuinely uh, fearful for her at this yeah. point. Yeah. And she's not getting any sleep because they're going to launch all of this stuff for the live stream exercise stuff. I don't even know exactly what it is that they're actually launching. I know there's some like products, like I don't know, products, maybe like wellness products or something that she's trying to sell. It seems were like they through Fortunato, like weren't they? Like weren't they Fortunato or gonna be? They they were. She was gonna. Okay, so Ligadone had hurt so many people. They were gonna come out launch these new products that were supposed to be nothing but beneficial. It was gonna change people's lives. How great these products were, and mm. remember because she gave. Um, I don't know if she does it here, but she goes to give that talk. It looks like they're like at a hotel conference room or whatever. But I think yeah. this, because that's why Madeline was so involved, is because they were really hoping this was going to be a turning point for Fortunato. Because I okay. think they had built that, or they had um, gotten through that court case and had won it. That whatever, you know, that we see him in court at the beginning, and that's where um, Augie tried to say, you know, there's an informant or whatever, which there never was. And I think they beat that court case. And I think they were going to use these, whatever, this new line of products, life-changing, you know. Because she was, like, yeah. their whole thing was, like, life coaching, really. They were, like, right. influencers and all that kind of stuff. But I think yeah. she had been put in charge to, you know, like, this was, they were going to be launching this new, uh, you know, whole new line or something that Fortunato was going to be involved in that was, you know, supposed to be nothing but good and was going to be, like, a turning point for them, so... Okay, I totally missed all of that. I just knew that she was trying to sell some wellness products or something. <laughs> so that makes a lot of sense, especially with how tight the writing is in this show. <laughs> um, and so also in this episode is when Pim goes to Freddy with the burner phone that he found on um, in Morella's belongings from the nightclub. Um, and we kind of see Freddy, like, really contemplating where this came from, why she had it, why was she at this party, like, what is going on? And he keeps kind of talking himself out of her doing anything bad at first, you know, but it's like he keeps going around and around in his head. And I think eventually he gets to a place where he has to, like, really come to terms that my wife intentionally went to this like sex crazed nightclub party with Which my very young brother. <laughs> but I think like he autom I think he ended up I think he took a lot of his because where he ends up going, I think he took a lot of his frustrations out on her. Because where he ultimately went seems way too cruel for what she did. Yes, she went to this party and I'm sure in his mind he must have like pictured her having an orgy and all. But I think she just she never did anything bad when she was there. I think she was really just trying to like feel like herself again you know what I mean yeah. you know as a mom and all that once your kids get older and you kind of just lose your identity I think a lot of women do I I know I felt that way before and it's just like I just want to feel like myself again and have something that was just mine I don't 
I mean, I don't know. She kind of seemed like she might have maybe been interested in him a little bit and then got hurt when he kind of like rebuffed her at the party. But mm-hmm. I think she I don't think she really went there with bad intentions. Like, yes, I'm going to go fuck my brother-in-law or anything. Yeah. like that. I think she just was like, OK, because he, he flattered her and made her feel special. And I think right. sometimes women just need to hear that because her husband certainly was like kind of always like mentally checked out and never really remember we were saying like. He never listened to what his wife and daughter had to say too much. And, yeah. you know, I I just think, you know, but where he ends up taking it is just, I don't, not sure she deserved that. So anyway. Right. Something we should mention, though, is that he's also starting to take a lot of cocaine, um, which he doesn't normally do. It's established. And actually, it's before Leo dies that he goes to Leo's apartment as well to get cocaine. And Leo's That's like, what? Right. Yeah, they don't have like a special bonding moment or anything though. He just like literally goes there to get cocaine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then his and Leo's trying to kind of coach him like on how much to take and stuff because he's not normally a drug you know taker. So. Um, but so he wants he, to be more of a performer for his father. That's why he's doing it. It's like the only when you say it's like the only reason he suddenly starts doing it. Like, uh, just, I really thought it was just to kind of cope with all the stuff going on with Morella is the interpretation that I got from it. But maybe oh, okay. not. Well, maybe it's both. I mean, his his life's starting to spiral now, too. And his yeah, siblings are dropping like flies at this point, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then we actually get to meet young Augie, uh, who at the time was a Medicare fraud investigator. And he comes to Roderick's door um, back in 1979 to ask him about his signature that's on a whole bunch of forms for Fortunato. And it turns out that they have been forging his name on a bunch of forms um, so they can get people into drug trials without informing patients of the side effects. Um, And as it turns out, a lot of these patients wound up dead and their bodies went missing from their graves and so this is when we get to see where Augie is first entering this whole dilemma of Fortunato and Ligadone and the evil that it causes. And, and so this is he's, back where, like I said, that I don't quite think that Roderick had like gone to the dark side yet. I think he was he agrees at first to help Augie. And I really think he meant to do it. You know, I think that, so that was too. my interpretation anyway at first. But then yeah. Madeline gets her. Her closet, yep. But it's really nice at the very beginning of their relationship, seeing them work together. They're building a case against Fortunato. um, And you can tell that um, Annabelle, his wife, is, like, super on board with this, you know, and very supportive. And Augie's really sweet, um, you know, and he can really pick up on things about them and their life style and the way that they're living just by like paying attention to their apartment and the kids and stuff and and he discloses his homosexuality there which would be a big deal for that time you know well i totally miss that yeah he's at their yeah at their kitchen table because they they asked him don't you have a wife or whatever and he kind of says he's waiting for me at home that's how he kind of like lets them know literally that yeah that's the first time that he lets them know that i believe Oh, my God. Okay. Which would be a big deal, because what year was it? It had to be... 79. Oh. No, because they... No, this would be before 79, because this is just starting the... Because didn't they... Didn't the wall incident happen in 79? Because that's when the... 
Like at the yeah. very end, right before it, New Year's New Year's night. So this mm-hmm. stuff was first meeting Augie and them doing the investigation has to be like early 70s, I would think. Or at least I don't think 70s. so. I think it all happens within that year. Really? Dang. I okay. mean, just according to recaps and stuff that oh. I've read. All right. Because they always say they always specifically say 1979, but maybe maybe not. Maybe it's earlier. I mean, it, it, it could be because it well it never goes anywhere. Right. Like <laughs> it doesn't quite get a chance. The investigation doesn't get a chance to go anywhere, really. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh. But yes, this is when they first get to meet up. Um, and you can tell that Roderick's like, oh, my God, they stole Ligodone from me. And now they're forging my signature on all these forms. And so he confronts um, his boss, Rufus. Um, and this guy, you know, is like, oh, we need you to be a team player. And he, I think he tries to kind of use it like, oh, well, it's good that you know about this now because now you can just be in on it and be on the team. And he's telling him, like, you want to be on my good side. We're going to make all these moves. I'm going to get you promotions and all this stuff. You know, he's promising him all this stuff. Oh, an office on the same floor as him now instead of one, what, four floors down or whatever he said before. Like, he just starts throwing everything at him to, like, try to spin it to, like, Oh, I'm like, I'm so relieved that, you know, instead of like acknowledging what they did was so terrible to them, they're like, oh, it's so good that I'm so relieved that, you know, because now you can really be on board and be part of this, just like assuming he's going to want to come into all this corruption, you know? Yeah. And when he brings this information home, Annabelle Lee is disgusted, of course. Um, And Madeline is intrigued. (laughs) And this is where she really, really starts to yeah. her schemes. Yeah. So this might be the last that we see of good Roderick, as it turns out. Uh, but that ends episode four, The Black Cat. Can How you? you feel? I can go. On, I can go another if you want to, but I'm leaving oh, yeah. it up to you. No, definitely. Um, did you have any other? Do you remember anything else about this episode that you wanted to bring nope, up? I don't think so. Okay, cool. I don't think so either. All right. So we're going to get into episode five, The Telltale Heart, which was like my favorite short story when I was a little kid. I love this so much. I remember, I mean, I first heard it and we got taught it in school, like elementary mm-hmm. school. Yeah. So Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do that anymore, but they were still doing it when I was in elementary school. We actually, I remember seeing a film strip. This is how old I am. We saw a film strip <laughs> about it, and I was just like, I want to guess, like, I'd say about third grade, if I'm remembering correctly, and it, I don't know, it scared me. Yeah, you know, like I feel that, like it was the first thing I read that made me feel scared. Yeah. You know, like, before I got into, like, goosebumps and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So sweet. Um, this uh, little synopsis for this is Victorine inches closer to testing her heart technology on a patient until tensions erupt between her and Alessandra and Dupin makes a chilling confession. So. <laughs> so at this point, um, Roderick is starting to kind of have an idea about what's happening to his children, it seems. I think he's finally starting to kind of put the pieces together and not just think that he's, you know, hallucinating all the time. Um, and this is because Pim shows them the picture that Leo took of Verna with the cat. Um, and they, of course, recognize her also as a security guard from Camille's death. 
and the woman in the red cloak at Perry's party. So they're pretty sure that whoever she is, she's at the center of all of this. And Madeline uh, wants to, like, it seems like Roderick's on board with her being supernatural at this point, and Madeline seems to be, like, not having that at all. She's just like, I don't know how she's doing it. I don't know who she's linked up with. I don't know how she looks exactly the same 40 years later, but... I, I, there's no way this can be the same lady or whatever. I don't. And Roderick's like, you know who this is. And she's just not having it at this point. Yeah. Although she does have a theory that maybe it's her daughter or something, which like, oh, that's, okay. That's like yeah. somewhat reasonable, I guess. <laughs> which I think is her just putting off the inevitable as long as yeah. possible because she's such a no nonsense kind of a person. And I think Roderick's, you know, he's got this disease now and he's already starting to have symptoms. And I think he's just more susceptible or accepting of, look, this, you know, obviously this is all going down and you can. Well, and all of his kids are dying. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. He doesn't exactly. have any kids. Right. <laughs> it's true. all of his children that are dying. So I think it's even though he's a man of power and wealth, I think he somewhere cares about his children, hopefully. <laughs> Well, I mean, we've at least seen that side of him. Like we were just saying, we think up until this point, he really was a good guy. She's mm -hmm. never had that side. You know, Madeline mm -hmm. hasn't. So, yeah. No, she has not. <laughs> Ever since she was a small child. That's right. She's all very, very negative. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so they're starting to put together that this is the woman. And um, she, you know, brings back the – the bartender and the the night of New Year's Eve in 1979 in front of Pim, um, you know, and Roderick's kind of taken aback because they have a pact to never discuss that in front of anyone, not even Pim, you know. Um, but she, Madeline, you know, just talks about it bluntly um, in front of Pim, and he is trying to find her, so I guess it's fine, right? Um, at this point, what else are you going to do anyways? <laughs> exactly. And, um, again, Roderick is heading down to the basement of the Fortunato building, which we have been seeing him do here and there throughout the episodes now. Um, and he's back at that brick wall, and he's still hearing the jingling of bells. Um, and we see him really debate if he's, like, losing his mind or... These are very sad. I, I don't know. I just found these to be very sad scenes. When we say he's going down to the basement, he's going down there and, like slumping down to the floor and just sitting there and staring at the wall. And I think you can just I think it's him coming to terms with everything, the deaths of his children, possibly the comeuppance that he's got coming to him, you know, what he yeah. did 40 years ago. I just I, you know, it's just sad, I think. First of yeah. all, I, fi I find the idea of uh, dementia terrifying. Oh so God, I just the most terrifying. So I just can't, I mean, I mean, how is he even handling all of this at one time? You know, I mean, like with yeah. literally within weeks, he's gone from like one of the most powerful men in the world to having dementia and half of his children are dead, you know? So like, right. yeah. Yeah. And it's in the scene where he's actually contemplating suicide yep. um, and he's, you know, talking to himself about how it might stop the rest of the deaths of his children from happening but uh, ultimately, he's unable to go through with any of the uh, suicide attempts or thoughts, not real attempts. But um, but we do see him. He's like starting to unravel. Yes. And, and I then, think he's always had two. I think this is like for the first time, at least since the whole, you know, Augie coming into their lives. I think this is the first time 
he hasn't had Madeline right there. I think he's been trying to kind of like deal with this on his own. And I, I don't think he's dealt with anything on his own since 1979. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, I think he was like the face of the company, but I feel like she was like the power kind of almost. Right. Yeah, the starts, like the, probably keeping him from falling apart all this time. And yeah. yeah cleaning up all the messes. Actually behind mm-hmm. him and all that and you know he's really trying to not 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 involve her necessarily but i think he's also going through them through them through some things she can't help him with you right. know so totally yeah. uh and then we're flashed back to 1979 again and uh madeline is meeting with rufus in fortunato um and it's about like this ahead of its time computer system that she's talking to him about because she's really into uh what is she, what is it that she I'm trying to think of the the word um it's not like algorithms or analyze what I can't think of the word of what it is that she she likes to put in all these different like possibilities and figure out what the most likely outcome will be there's a very specific term for yeah. that. I just can't think of it right I now. I cannot think of I know exactly what you're talking about. I also cannot think of it right now. I mean, we use it at my job, too. I <laughs> can't think of it. But anyway, she's trying, she's trying to sell this idea to Rufus. It's just him and her in the office. And he's being, like, very gross and sexist and, like, trying to humiliate her when, you know, she's not interested in, like, sleeping with him. And... It's kind of a gross scene. It is a disgustingly gross scene. However, I'm sure this happened more times than not at this point. And uh, if only, you know, he was actually stupid to not take her up on it because that's kind of the way the world ended up going. But this is, you know, like when computers were just kind of starting to be, they certainly weren't necessarily in home so much, but they were really starting to be in businesses and stuff like that. But I think... Most people didn't even really understand them and what they would become and how they worked. And, you know, somebody at his level probably might have had one on his desk, but certainly would never have understood, you know, how important those were going to be someday. And I mean, I think had he gotten into computers at that point or listened to her, they Mm -hmm. could have actually got a fortune in a legitimate way, you know, but he he literally he just yes, she's very beautiful. okay, but. As soon as she walks in the door, he's already dismissed her and is, like, already, like, you know, bringing up, don't you, I'm not interested in what you have to say, but why don't we sleep together kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, and she's just like, oh, my God. And he brings up how they're the illegitimate children of Longfellow, so he's aware of their connection to Fortunato in that sense. Um, But then we see Madeline, um, you know, go back to the apartment with Roderick and Annabelle, and she's telling them, as well as Dupin, that the meeting went really well, and she now knows for certain that Rufus is an idiot and that he underestimates them. Um, and so we figure out that this was all part of the scheme yeah. um, for him, her to just kind of get, like, some insights on who he is, what kind of a person he is, like, what they can get away with. Um, and... Um, Angie points out that the meeting also gave them another piece of information. Um, so they know for sure that the documents that would incriminate Rufus and Fortunato still exist and are sitting down in the Fortunato building basement. So that was fun. 
I like when well, they're all working yeah, together. <laughs> she was like, she was offering to like digitize. I don't know if that's the word. All of his, all of their records, I right? He, he calls right her word. out on it and is like, oh yeah, sure. You, I know you're fishing for information. I maybe, maybe I'm not totally sure why or whatever. I don't even think he thinks that she's going to like use it to promote her brother or anything. I think he thinks maybe she's up to something, but he does make that link as stupid as he is and doofusy as he is. He does make <laughs> that link that um I kind of see what you're doing here. I think you ultimately want to get into my record. So I think he, he's too dumb seriously to like figure out the big picture, but he knows something is weird. And so yeah. then I think he just, he's done with her. He just dismissed her at this point And it's just like, why don't we get to what you really came here for? Because you know you want to sleep with me. And he doesn't exactly say that. But that's what he acts like. Because yeah. every woman must want to sleep with me because I'm a powerful white man, you know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Gross. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it is, it's fun while it lasts, the the interactions between Augie and Madeline and um, Roderick. When we're up, they're all kind of working together for the greater good. I wish that things would have continued down that lane. Oh, me too, but then we wouldn't have a show, so we have to get yeah. but I'm like ready for the whole series that in the ultimate universe where it's those three teaming up and fighting evil. You know what I mean? Oh, like, that would be a fun spin off. I'm, I'm ready for that spin off. Just like a feel good spin off. Yeah. Because <laughs> I loved Annabelle Lee so much. I could watch her all day. And I just I don't know, I just Liked that dynamic between them. Oh, my God. You know, what's really great, too, is that, you know, that actress is obviously, like, the main villain in um, The Haunting of Hill House. And she's so, like, evil and manipulative and creepy in that series. And to see her play this really down-to-earth, like, shining, beautiful, lovely wife and supportive person and mother... It's like, wow, she did a really, really good job. Because when I first saw her, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, I knew yeah, you, creepy yeah, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but well, she does. She wins me over. And then I was able to not think of her as just that character. Yeah, that's so true. Now, she was like the mother everybody would want, the wife everybody would want, and exceedingly beautiful on top of it. So I know her beautiful, like, curly, reddish-brown hair. I loved it. But back in the present day, uh, Alessandra finds out that Victorine is pushing for human trials for their heart mesh device um, by not just scheduling her for surgery, but also forging her signature on data reports. There's more signature forging. Yes. And she is pissed. And Victorine's trying to be like, oh, it's fine. What are you talking about? Just trying to play it cool. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> This is not fine. Like, I can get in so much trouble, obviously lose my practice and my license and all of these things. And Victorine is just, like, so desperate to get into these damn human trials, you know, that she's just, like, not doing things the way that she should be. Well, we were talking about her lies compounding before. I mean, now I think they've just compounded so much that she doesn't even know reality from not reality anymore. And, yeah. you have to, I mean, yes, that Alessandra is her business part, but it's also her her girlfriends and I think she's yeah. one of the few characters that was not blinded by the usher opulence you know I think she yeah. really loved her and really considered them business partners and just wasn't blinded by that money and fame and all that and I think was just super super hurt I think also when she found out that her girlfriend a was 
obviously losing her mind, but also would deceive her in such a way that, you know, she straight up totally threatened her whole career and wasn't even going to tell her about it, you know? Yeah. I'm assuming that, you know, in the time before we've gotten to know the ushers that Victorine and Alessandra probably have like a pretty good relationship and she's probably normally not a terrible person, you know, and that the circumstances yeah. like really pushed her um, yeah. into becoming a monster just like the rest of her family, um, you know, and Alessandra is like, this is over. I'm done with this. And she's about to head out. And Victorine's like, you know, what about the NDAs? <laughs> Everyone's got to bring up the friggin' NDAs every time someone wants yeah. to leave. But um, in anger, Victorine hurls a marble bookend uh, towards Alessandra as she leaves the apartment or their house. I don't. It's a house, yeah, yeah. It's a house. It's a pretty nice house. But um, it was like um, her off, like her office in the house. I think, like it seemed yeah. like, yeah. And so they're over. Um, and the next time we see Victorine, she's in her office and she's trying to call Alessandra to apologize and she keeps calling her. You see when she looks at her phone, there's all these missed calls. We could tell she's just becoming more and more frantic and that she's freaked out about the human trials, but she's also freaked out about losing Alessandra. And she's just like, looks like a completely deranged person at this point. Well, she knows, I mean, Alessandra's parting words, at least we think they were, is I'm, I'm exposing you. I don't care. And I think in Victorine's mind, it's like, my dad's going to find out I'm a fraud. Like, yes, she hated mm-hmm. losing her girlfriend on, but I think ultimately it's like, oh, my jig is up. Everybody's going to find out, but especially my dad's going to find out that I'm a fraud. You know? True. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while in her office, she also keeps hearing this chirping sound and she can't figure out where it's coming from. And so this is where the telltale heart really comes into play. Yep. She keeps hearing the sound that she's consuming her and she can't get it to stop. Uh, and so later that day, Roderick shows up at her house and he's going to actually offer his complete support. And he's apologizing for pitting his children against each other. Um, and it's like this really sweet, genuine moment from him where he's starting to finally realize, like, all of the wrongs that his empire have done, you know, at least to his family. Like, yep. if he's still not thinking about the greater world, like, you could tell he feels bad about all of his kids going after each other. But we can see that she's distracted because she's still hearing that chirping, even in her house. Uh, and then Roderick admits that he can actually hear it, too. Um, so he's like looking around trying to figure out where the chirping's coming from. Um, and he's smelling something kind of strange. <laughs> and then, um, we see that while this is happening, Victorine is starting to kind of remember what had happened, uh, when her and Alessandra had gotten into their fight. And what happened was when she threw that bookend at her, it actually hit her in the head and she slowly bled out on the floor in front of her. Um, and Victorine could have called someone for help. You know, there was a moment where we see her kind of thinking and realizing because she's not dead yet. But when she realizes that she's definitely going to die, she doesn't do anything. She doesn't call anyone. She just watches her die. And it's problems. She thinks her problems will be over then. Yeah. It's really a horrific scene. And then we're like, okay, this is who Victorine really is. This is what you would allow. It's really terrible. And at the same time, Roderick 
follows the sound into their uh, back room and he sees Alessandra is dead and propped up against the wall with her chest cut open. Um, and now he knows that the sound is coming from the heart mesh device that Victorine had sewed into her dead girlfriend's lifeless heart. And it has been pumping and pumping and pumping ever since. Yep. Ugh. What a cool scene. <laughs> what a gross and cool scene. And we just see the life kind of leave Roderick's eyes. He's like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I started and created? And then also because Victorine is now realizing what she did and is no longer in denial, I think, she stabs herself in the heart right in front of Roderick. Right in front of Roderick. Yes. Like right in front of him. (laughs) Poor friend. I mean, (laughs) I mean, he like deserves everything that happens to him. I I know, but I feel the same way (laughs) as you do. I feel like poor, I do. I feel that. I I mean, he's this old guy like battling with dementia. I'm like, oh, sad. Oh, so that is the end and what, of the fourth kid down now, right? Yeah. Yes. Yep. <sighs> Two more to go. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that is the end of that scene. And then we do actually get to see Tamerlan again in her home um, and her hallucinations that she's having all these weird, jealous delusions of Verna um, are getting worse and worse. And this ends up turning into a screaming fight between her and Bill. And she is so insulting. And this is when she basically tells him that she can replace him and she doesn't need him. She just needs a business partner. And that's all he ever was, she tells him. Yeah, she's like, pretty much, I picked picked you out specifically for this. And you can see that he's so hurt. Yep, yep. What's sad, too, is that in these scenes, following the scene of her in their place, you see her having these hallucinations of like him coming back and them having like a good actual honest conversation and her telling him her true feelings instead of this mean shit that she's just saying because she's being defensive. And then we realize it's a hallucination. I know. I was, I wanted it to be true. Like maybe she's having a come to Jesus moment. Like I think her dad is at this point, you know, and I was like, yay. And then no, it was just a hallucination. And this was after she was having the the hallucinations or has she had the hallucinations yet of Verna in her apartment? I think this might be, or does that happen next? I can't remember. I can't remember either. Sorry. (laughs) I can't remember if it's happening now and that's why they started fighting or if it's afterwards because she's just like really going. It might be afterwards because she she like holes up in the apartment for a while, right? Yeah. Just, yeah, I think it's coming. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and she starts getting by about when she's, leaving, like, sleeping and awake and stuff. And right, and by Bill like, leaving, time jumps. Yeah, and she tries taking, like, sleeping. Nothing's working. She's trying, like, sleeping pills and stuff. And I think this, her, now she's completely alone in there. And, you know, she's at the mercy of, like, her own mind now. And I think this is when she's, I think Verna's able to get in there now then. Because Bill's Absolutely. gone. Bill leaves her. Yeah. Yes, he leaves. She basically gave him no other option. And he's like, before he leaves, too, he's like, I care about you. Yeah. You know, I want you to take care of yourself. And she's like, the launch. And also candy. Like, you're just screwing around with candy. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. She was not in the video. If yep. she was, I didn't even notice that she was there. But she's just losing it. And then we also get to see 
um, Froderick growing angrier and bitter. You know, he keeps doing cocaine. He's finally kind of come to the point where he's like, okay, there's something up with Morella and her burner phone. He's obsessing about her, though, like obsessing about her going to this party at this point. I know. And, you know, at first I thought it was just kind of this really sad, kind of sweet, like, oh, my God. I did, too. I did, But then you start to realize that it's like the entitled power hungry side of him of like, well, no one can do that to me. I'm this rich, powerful person. It's like he can't, like, admit it to himself. Right. Episode five, we've never seen that side of him, though. He really did kind of seem like a bumbling doofus almost, kind of. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like. But I think he is now so hopped up on cocaine that mm-hmm. he's very offended that <laughs> his wife could potentially have betrayed him in some way. Um, so we're starting to see this like really gross side of him start to come out more and more. Um, and he's talking to the doctors at the hospital about wanting to bring her home. And they're like, she really should not be going home. Like, she was burned by acid rain. And yeah. He's like. And not, not that much time has gone. Like, she's in no. no shape to be going home. And he plays the usher card on him. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, we're all rich and powerful. And we have all the state-of-the-art equipment. Makes your hospital look like fucking yep. scum on the bottom of my shoe. Yep. <laughs> yep. So he, in the end, gets what he wants, and, you know, we see him telling uh, their daughter, Lenore, that uh, we've almost got her. And then when he says that to her, it's like this really weird, creepy undertone that Lenore kind of picks up on, but she's just like, okay, well, I'm glad mom's coming home, I guess. Poor freaking Lenore. Well, he tells Lenore, right, like, I'm going to get all the best specialists are going to come to her, and it convinces her that, you know, it's in her mom's best interest that she be brought home to get the proper care exactly that only the ushers can provide not some lowly little hospital right (laughs) but yeah and that brings this episode to an end (laughs) so we're done with our reviews for the night like we said we don't have any other segments except we will of course do our monstrous mention for the episode and again we're going to hold off on ratings until we finish up with the series on our next episode when we'll be going through episodes six seven and eight So our monstrous mention for this week is Projectile Varmint, a.k.a. Susie. (laughs) And Susie is an artist and a podcaster. And she's on Nobody's Horror Podcast, which she started up with Lonely recently. And the horror content content podcast where she and Lovely clean up the ugly things so you don't have to. (laughs) Their bi-weekly show features two hosts and rotating guest content experts, tackling the nitty-gritty complex horror topics in an attempt to make the genre more approachable for frequent fright flyers and newbies alike. And they value diverse voices and perspectives in horror. We um, love that. We do. I've been enjoying their podcast a lot so far. She's great. She's funny. And she actually, she reminds me a lot of you, Tammy. Like, I feel like your personalities are pretty really? similar. Yeah. Oh, now I'm uh, interested. <laughs> yeah. She is really hilarious. Um, <laughs> and I love her. But um, I'll have all of her links for the things that I could find. Like her, she has her personal 
Instagram. Then they have the Nobody's Horror Podcast Instagram. All right. Awesome. But yeah, that's going to do it for this week. You want to lead us out, Tammy? I would love to. So that is going to do it for this episode of Horror Through Her Eyes. Uh, next week, we'll be reviewing the next three episodes of Fall of the House of Usher. Wrap it up, right? I think. Yes. So that's your homework for right now. Watch it, please, if you haven't. But I'm really hoping if you've listened to this point, you have finished the series. No cheating. Okay, so, (laughs) or if you're just, you know, if you're, like, watching along with us, that's fine, too. So then you need to watch the next three, and I will accept that. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast anywhere that podcasts are found. Please, 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 please. Please. Join our Horror Through Her Eyes Facebook group page, which is really starting to take off. We're getting a lot of interaction on there. I love it. Um, You can, yes, you can email us at horrorthroughhereyes at yahoo.com. Follow us on Instagram and threads at Horror Through Her Eyes Pod with an underscore in between each word. You can follow us on TikTok at Horror Through Her Eyes Pod, which I have taught myself TikTok, so I'm really trying to keep it up. You, like, I love laugh. your little videos, by the way. <laughs> I don't even you. want to try and make anything like specific for Instagram. I'm just going to repost your TikToks. So oh, it's fine with me. Keep doing it. It's like <laughs> I figured out how to do one thing. I'm so proud of myself. Um, <laughs> you can follow. Okay, and follow us on Letterbox at Horror Her Eyes. As we bid you farewell, we hope you enjoyed your time with us on Horror Through Her Eyes. Uh, It's been a blast diving into the depths of dread with you. It really has. And until next time, remember to live deliciously. Yeah. Do it. Live deliciously. Do it.
I can do A total eclipse of the heart Nothing I can say 